Um, but thank you for um, allowing me to preach to you guys this morning. Thank you to Pete, wherever he is. Um, it's a real privilege to be able to do so. Oh, there you are. Hello. Um, I love the book of John, so it's, it's a great, it is a great privilege to be able to preach um, this first sermon in, in our John series. So hopefully you guys will get something out of it and, and God speaks to us this morning. Uh, so I might just pray briefly before uh, jumping in. Lord, I thank you for this uh, opportunity and I pray that you would use me as your instrument to reveal uh, your word and truth uh, to all of us. Let us all hear, let us all receive your word this morning and be transformed by it. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, well, I really dislike uh, writing resumes. And I'm, prob- I'm sure probably there are a lot of people in the congregation who feel the same way. Having to talk about yourself, having to talk about your qualifications, skills, your aptitude for whatever job you're applying for. Um, and it can be hard trying to convince uh, prospective employers of your suitability um, and to try and sell yourself. I'm not very good at that myself. But I do understand why it's necessary. Obviously, an employer uh, wants the best person for the job. They want to ensure the candidates can do the requisite work and perform the tasks at hand. And a resume, I guess, helps them sort of um, winnow out those who aren't suitable. Uh, it helps them select the most appropriate person for the role. And I think this morning's text, John 1, 1 to 5, and actually the whole of John's opening prologue, functions a lot like a resume. It presents someone who is completely suited for a particular, a particular role. And the person John is talking about is, is Jesus, obviously, whom he, strangely enough, calls the word here at this point. He's the only person who can do the job. He's the only person who can perfectly fulfil its unique requirements. The question is, I guess, what is the role? What's the job that, um, that John's talking about? Or put simply, it's the role of, of Redeemer. Someone who will give us true knowledge of God. Someone who will completely renew God's creation. John writes, obviously, as a Christian who believes that the world is in desperate need of a rescue. But he also believes, obviously, that God has provided the solution in the form of Jesus Christ, the Word. So John lays out before us, here in these, these opening verses, the Word's unrivaled capacity to accomplish this redemption. The Word, Jesus, is the ideal candidate for at least three reasons that I can see here in, here, here in this passage. He's the, the author of life, the guarantor of life. He is eternal. And he is God, and he is with God. So, the word is the guarantor of life. When John starts much further back than the other Gospels, he sort of takes us back beyond time and creation when only the word and God existed. And so from the get-go, he wants us to know that the word, who became incarnate in Christ, is the author of life. And this is the first reason why he's uniquely qualified to be our Redeemer. So John commences with the words, in the beginning was the word, in verse 1. And if it sounds familiar, there's probably a reason for that, because I think John here is consciously echoing the opening verse of Genesis 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now a lot of New Testament writers, they do this sort of thing, they refer back to the Old Testament to make sense of Jesus' mission, his person, 
what he came to accomplish. And so this is, this is what John's doing here. By echoing Genesis in the very first verse, I think John is wanting to point to connections between the creation story and the events that he writes about, even as he then goes on to point out some significant differences. So in Genesis, God is there in the beginning. John says the same thing is true of the word. In Genesis, God is the creator of all. Precisely the same thing, John writes, can be said of the word. In Genesis, we read about the first creation, the original creation. Here in John, we read about the word who is responsible. He just alludes to it, but is responsible for a new creation, a better creation. So that last one is quite important. I'll park it there for now, and I'll come back to it later. But remember what the opening chapter of Genesis says repeatedly. And God said, and God said, and God said. God brought creation into being through the power of his word. So the word is the agent or the instrument of creation. I mean, other bits of the Old Testament pick up on this, this, this theme, sometimes calling it God's word, at other times calling it God's wisdom. And so you see it in Psalm 33, where God is celebrated for having commanded the world to come into being. He spoke our reality into existence. So you look at Proverbs 8, for example, where wisdom is talked about uh, in, in terms of being God's master craftsman, appointed from eternity, having helped him bring the world into being. I think that's what John's getting at when he talks about the word being there in the beginning. So a good way of thinking about this might be to, I guess, imagine, say, an architect and a master builder. They cooperate together, they integrate their efforts to build, say, a, a grand cathedral or something like that. In a similar fashion, God and his word have cooperated to fashion this world. It's an ordered, meaningful place. It's not a, uh, it's not a place of, 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 of randomness. It's not a jumble of, of cosmic junk, but it's a place of value, precisely because God has brought it into being. So in echoing Genesis 1 here at this point in verse 1, John is, as I said, subtly alluding to what he eventually states explicitly and openly. The word created everything, verses 3 and 4. And so John's emphatic, the word is the source of all life, is the foundation of the world. Nothing that exists can do so without him. I mean, this is very different to our ability to bring life into the world or to sustain it. Um, Jess and I used to uh, have a herb garden, a little herb garden. It's, it's beyond dead now, but for a while we tried there valiantly to keep it going. Um, but to keep the herbs healthy, obviously, we needed to tend to them. They needed to have good soil. They needed to, um, uh, to enjoy access to sunshine, light, water and so forth. And we relied on these, these external things, things outside of ourselves, to, I guess, keep these, keep these herbs going, to sustain them. But obviously, if there wasn't enough water, or if we didn't tend to them, if, uh, if, if the sunlight was poor, then the herbs would eventually die. But the word's completely unlike that. And having brought creation into being out of nothing, he upholds it. He doesn't rely on any external aids or materials 
But as verse 4 states, he has life in himself, in his very own being, and it's through that that he upholds the world in which we live. So you might think of it this way, I suppose. It's, it's kind of the difference, I guess, between a character in a story, say, who plants a tree or, or gives birth to a child, and the writer of that story actually bringing the narrative into being in the first place. I mean, we're like the characters in, 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 in a story. The word, on the other hand, is, is the author of that story, and it's only through his agency that we can, we can exist in the first place, that we can enjoy life in the first place. So I want to come back now to the idea of new creation, because I think it's, it's very important it's embedded here in this passage. That's why John alludes to Genesis at the very beginning of, of his work here, and it frames the rest of what he goes on to say about the word's redemptive role, his role as redeemer. So from the outset, John wants us to know what the word's doing. He wants us to know exactly why the word is here and why he came in the flesh, which he goes on to talk about later in, in the gospel. This is nothing less than what you might call new creation, a new beginning, a new genesis, if you like. This is what the word will accomplish, John says. It's not merely a, a replica of the old creation, but it's something fresh, something filled with new life, something filled with renewed life, life that can't be extinguished. So what John's saying is that just as the word was present at creation in the beginning, so now he stands at the beginning of a, of a new world. Just as he was God's partner in the original creation of the world, so now is he responsible for creation's renewal. He carries life in his hands. He has life in himself. And John suggests, he implies here at this point anyway, that he will banish sin and death and comprehensively remake the created order. So that's the first reason why the word is the perfect candidate for, for a redeemer. The second reason why, why he is... He's a perfect candidate. Why he perfectly fulfills this role is that he is eternal. So in the beginning doesn't just mean that the word was there at the beginning of creation. He was there prior to creation, before anything else existed. So the word's not a, a created thing. He's not a tool that we might, we might use. He's not like a, a, some sort of instrument a tool that we might employ in order to build a house or, or, or write a book. So created things are, I guess, prone to corruption. They're prone to decay. We see it around us all the time. They might malfunction. They might fail. But not so the word. He doesn't fail. He doesn't flag. He doesn't malfunction. And unlike humans, he is, he's not limited in his power. He's not constrained in his goodness. He has these things to the fullest degree, to the fullest extent, because he is eternal. So Isaiah 40, uh, verses 6 to 8, um, state that whilst physical things will wither away, God's word will endure forever. And that's not high-in-the-sky belief, I don't think, because if, if the word is eternal, if he is not constrained at all by this present finite and sinful world, then there's no question of him failing or, or, or passing away. There's no question of, 
of God's word and his purposes failing or passing away. The word's not subject to the same consequences, obviously, that that we are um, as we make our way through a sinful and broken world. We can be encouraged in this, I think, because what God has set in motion will, will come to pass and his word will prevail. It's not based on anything in this world. It's, it's not dependent upon anything in this world as our plans tend to be. Our plans can be frustrated. They can be thwarted by unfavourable circumstances. But we should know that God's purpose to reveal himself and to renew his creation is in no way dependent upon creation. In no way does it have to rely on favourable circumstances. I think that the word being talked of in this way as eternal really chimes well with the, um, um, with the claim John makes that he created all things. They go together, hand in glove. So when John goes on later in, in the gospel to talk about Jesus, he's not just talking about someone who you know, lived and died in, in first, century, uh, first century Palestine. He's actually writing about someone who, before his incarnation, existed as divine wisdom for ages past. You know, I guess you can imagine um, how God's plans would fare if if they did depend on, say, us. Um, I mean, if that were the case, I'm not sure that we'd get very far at all. But that's not the case, obviously. Everything necessary for our salvation and for the redemption of this world was already in place prior to our existence having grown out of God's eternal will, out of his own loving character. And I think this is liberating. Uh, it, it, certainly, it certainly frees me from the obligation to have to do anything to try and accomplish uh, the redemption of God's world. I mean, I, we, we partner with him as Christians, as, as his people, certainly. But as I said, everything was already set in place. And we just, we just joined him in that project through his grace. It means that the divine determination to save us has its origin sorry, in eternity, based on nothing else than God's perfect character, of which the word is the perfect expression. So that leads me into the third reason why I think the word is, and why I think John is saying the word is the perfect candidate for redemption. He is intimately identified with God himself. So that takes us back to the first couple of verses in this passage. So to say that the word possesses life in himself and he is before all things pretty much amounts to the, to the truth, the claim that he's none other than God, God himself, the creator. So in some strange way, John is saying that the word and God are one. I remember reading these verses when I was younger and just being baffled by this talk of the Word. Why would John call Jesus the Word? How can the Word be God and with God at the same time? It was all very strange, very bizarre. So it's probably worth lingering here for a moment just to try and grasp what's going on. I've already made references, I guess, to what the Word probably signals. But let's just have a look at what it means to say that the Word is God and is with God. So a little bit of background. The ancient Israelites obviously believed in one God. But it wasn't so simple as that. They, they grappled um, with 
fundamental aspects of that question, um, the nature of God. And those passages that I've already mentioned, Proverbs 8, Psalm 33, even Genesis 1, they reflect this attempt to, to grapple with the question, how could their great and powerful God, sovereign over all things, completely transcendent, the ruler of the cosmos, be at the same time intimately involved in his creation, present in every corner of it? How could he, how could he be above and yet through and in and, and, uh, and with all things? So the idea of the word or divine wisdom was an attempt to, to answer that question. So if we were to have a look at, say, Isaiah 55, 11, we'd see or read about God talking about his word. It says there that he will send his word to refresh and to replenish the earth, like, like rain watering it. So God's wisdom is certainly identified with God, but it's also capable of, of being distinguished. There's, there's a sameness and a difference a transcendence and an intimate presence, all sort of bundled up within the one God. And it's summed up here in what John says. The Word was with God and the Word was God simultaneously. So here's an analogy I think that can help us grasp what's going on here. It's not perfect, but I think like all analogies. Um, but I do, I do think it can actually just give us some clarity around, uh, around this passage. So when I speak, or when I write, my words, uh, they, re they reflect my mind, they reflect my thoughts, and they reflect the contents of my mind. So it's difficult to separate me and, and my words. It's difficult to separate me and my thoughts. I mean, if I don't exist, then my thoughts don't exist. But without my thoughts, then what am I? At the same time, my words can take on a power of their own, if you like. They, they do represent me, but they have a kind of independence as well. So they can go out and they can, um, they can persuade people, they can change people's perspectives, even though I might not be around, I might not even be present when, when that happens. They can cross time and space, you know, so if I write an email to a friend overseas. So those words, whilst they come from me and they're a part of me in a sense, are also to be distinguished. I think something like that is going on here when John writes about the word's relationship with God. But when it comes to the word and, and that relationship with God, this distinctiveness that John's sort of pointing to, it doesn't mean separation. So in verses 1 and 2, where it talks about the word being with God, it really does point to an intimate union. The Word and God have existed together for all eternity, for ages past. And their knowledge of each other couldn't be deeper or more complete. So the Word's not only identified with God. John says that their relationship is such that the Word knows the mind and the will and the purposes and the plans and the thoughts of God. Is God's mind present in creation? Is God's active and creative will? Sustaining and animating all things. So that's partly why verse 4, I think, uh, states that the Word's life was light for everybody. The Word brings renewal, certainly. But as the wisdom of God and the truth of God, He also brings a saving knowledge to people.
So another little quick analogy, I think these illustrations can be, um, um, can be helpful. You think of the sun. On the one hand, it provides us with health and vitality. It animates us. And it also provides us with light. It enables us to see and observe things around us and to, to, to gather knowledge as a result. And so the words life is also light. What brings us life also brings us truth and vice versa. And this light is not, it's not, a, it's not an intellectual, merely intellectual knowledge at all. And the Old Testament sometimes uses light as an image of salvation. Knowledge of God that brings a person into relationship with him. And so here the light of the word who mediates the truth of God into the world carries with him new life, true life, eternal life in God's presence in relationship with him. Light and life are two sides of the same redemptive reality. And the word is the source of them both. It reminds me um, of Jesus' words at the beginning of chapter 17, actually, where he's, he's praying. It's called often called his high priestly prayer. And um, in verse 3 of that, ch- uh, of that chapter, he says that eternal life consists in knowing God through him. And see there again, life and light coming together. Life, life and truth coming together. So, the word is the perfect candidate for redemption for those three reasons, which I think John lays out. He's the author of life. He's eternal. And he is to be radically, deeply, intimately identified with God. It's pretty heavy theology. And as I said before, when I was younger, I used to wonder and scratch my head, trying to make sense of these first few verses. But I do think the passage can speak to us and, and can teach us a lot. So I just want to sketch out a few, a few things that I think we can take away. From this, from this passage, beyond what, what I've already shared. So I think firstly we learn something here about God. Now obviously John, John 1, 1-5 speaks of God as creator. But remember what else he does. He, he says exactly the same thing of the word. So the word is also sovereign like God. The, the word has life in him like God. God is eternal, he's not not susceptible to to moral or physical corruption, and exactly the same thing can be said of the word. So I think it's as um, John Calvin said, John Calvin, for those of you who don't know, was a 16th century reformer. And he said that when we believe in Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, when we believe in Jesus, we're not being drawn away from God, quite the contrary. We're actually being drawn to him, to the eternal God, The word is light, and here it means that he perfectly reveals, he perfectly unveils God's truth and character. So if we want to know what God is, or who God is, so I should say, and what he's like, we don't need to go any further uh, than Jesus. This man who walked through the towns of Galilee and Judea, preaching and teaching and, 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 and working miracles, you know, the one who, who, who ended up dying a shameful death on the cross, all of that perfectly, pristinely revealed, I guess in a surprising way at the same time, the eternal God, the creator of all. And I think this vision of God should encourage us. 
the word shows us that we follow a, a matchless God, a sovereign God, who is at the very same time interested, deeply and radically invested in the world he has made. I think it also does challenge contemporary images of, of God, of the divine. Um, I've spoken to quite a few people over the years, um, non-Christians I mean, generally speaking, who, whilst there are lots of different beliefs out there, two, two will, often, um, will often crop up. So on the one hand, some people might think of God as, as distant, as remote. They might have some sort of vague belief in in a creator, someone who may have brought this world into being, but who's not terribly interested in it now. He's, he's, um, he's off somewhere else doing his own thing, I guess. On the other hand, some people might believe that God is intimately present in this world, but so present that the, that, that the world and God end up becoming one, that there's no distinction between the two. So either God's uh, investment in this world or his power over it is lost, and I think the truth of God's character is muted on, on either of those views. This passage, I think, avoids both those extremes. Here in, in John 1, uh, 1 to 5, God is neither remote and uninterested, nor is he indistinguishable from the world around us. So his sovereignty means that he has the power to heal this world. He has the power to liberate it from all the manifestations of sin and evil and death that we see around us, both great and small. Whilst his radical presence in this world, through his word, is a signal to us, I think, that he has the will, uh, that he has the will and the desire to do so. That because he's invested in this world, he will heal it, and he will remake it, and he will liberate it. I think this passage also teaches us something about creation itself and us as, as citizens of creation. So as I said, John tells us that the word fashioned creation. He brought it into being and he will renew it. This can certainly challenge some conceptions of salvation. And I've spoken to a number of Christians in the past and, and even been to some churches too where Salvation is often defined in terms of an escape from this world. This world is destined for obliteration, for destruction. And, um, and our salvation means that, uh, that uh, we will go off into, a, I guess, a disembodied future away from this world. But I don't think that's what's envisaged here. Instead, I think this is about, as I said, new creation. That's what John is pointing us to. It's life transformed. It's life renewed. Free from the slavery of death and decay. But certainly bodily life, physical life, life enjoyed in the body. Again, it goes back to something that I just said before. God is invested in this world. It's a world of value and meaning and significance. And it won't be consigned to the, uh, to the trashing. Uh, theologian and New Testament scholar Tom Wright um, has written that all of us sense uh, that this world is in some way out of joint. And that sense can, I guess, be stimulated by what we see in the papers um, or by what we feel within ourselves. A sense perhaps of futility or a sense, of, uh, a sense perhaps that things are, things are broken down, things are fractured. John here hints of the ultimate solution and it certainly doesn't mean destruction or abandonment. 
You know, Paul says in Romans 8 that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay, whilst Christians will enjoy resurrection life. One for us by the word. This is what John is trying to point us to here, I think. And so through sending the word, God has set about rescuing it. This, I think, also has consequences for those of us who who seek to follow God, who seek to follow Christ. It means living as sent people, people who have been sent into this world, people who who are invested in this world in the way that God is invested in it. Later on in John, I think it's in chapter 20, um, Jesus appears amongst the disciples after he's been resurrected and he breathes uh, his spirit upon them and he says something like, um, "In in the way that the Father has sent me, I send you. And so like the word, we have been sent into the world to be radically present within it, not to affirm it as it is, not simply to legitimate what happens to be in the moment, but to bring about newness of life wherever we go, through our words, through our actions, in our very own selves. We're being asked here, and John will go on uh, throughout the Gospel to, to point us in this direction, but we're being asked, I think, to remain open to the certainty that will be used in some way, some way as instruments of divine healing and grace, crossing boundaries as the word did, stepping into unfamiliar places, entering the painful reality of a world that is wracked by sin. So such a sending could mean we're sent overseas to work, uh, to work on foreign aid projects, say, in foreign, foreign lands. But I don't think it has to be as grand as that. I mean, we can start here in our own neighbourhoods, in our own communities. It might mean building bridges with, with a neighbour, we've not spoken with before. It might mean stepping into the world of a person who is broken or suffering from illness. It might mean um, engaging in creation care. I mean, we read here about the renewal of creation, and I think that's very appropriate. But even in those ordinary ways, we might think of those as, 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 as fairly ordinary, not, not terribly spectacular at all. But even in those ways, we can act as representatives of the word. We can anticipate the renewal of creation in those acts. And we can channel God's life and truth into other people's lives. Um, I wanted to round off this sermon just with some words from um, a writer called A.W. Tozer. Um, he, he, he wrote in the 20th century and often has very profound, or had very profound things to say. So this is what, um, this is what he said about, um, about the Word. All things came out of the Word. The thought and will of God in active expression identified with Jesus Christ. It is the Son, the Word, who is the truth that makes men free. Eternal truth delivers men, and that eternal truth became flesh to dwell among us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you again for this opportunity. And I pray that you would help us to go out, Lord God, changed by your word and your wisdom, enlivened by it, Lord God, and ready to be sent into this world wherever you would have us go, 
to act as agents of new creation, Lord God, to bring your healing and grace and power and love to a world that is hurting and broken. Give us eyes to see, Lord God. Present those opportunities to us. By your grace, use us, though we are imperfect, I pray. And let us see you and enjoy you and know you and celebrate you. I pray this is in your name. Amen.